Hey guys, let me tell you about today's sponsor, and that's Surfshark VPN, the official VPN of the American History Podcast. A VPN is a tool that improves your online privacy and protects you from hackers. How? It basically acts as a shield and hides your IP address, so everything you do online stays private, whether it would be reading the news, streaming some shows, listening to podcasts, you name it. I can tell you personally, I never get online without my Surfshark VPN. Plus, if you use a VPN, you can virtually travel the world from the comfort of your own home, and Surfshark will give you 100 countries to choose from. Once you change your virtual location, you'll be able to bypass censorship and restrictions, find your favorites on Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, or other streaming services, and even access new libraries to watch even more content. Can't see a YouTube video because of your location? Use Surfshark VPN. Can't access that one website to buy a limited edition sneakers? Use Surfshark VPN. Try Surfshark today, totally risk-free, with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Get Surfshark VPN at surfshark.deals/americanhistory. Enter promo code American History for an 83% discount plus three additional months of protection for free. Yes, you heard right, 83% off. Once again, go to surfshark.deals/americanhistory and use promo code American History for 83% off and three extra months for free. Okay, let's get back into the show. The American History Podcast. Season 4, Episode 19, The Southwest Pacific Theater, Part this 1. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen to Okay, welcome back. Now, today's show is going to see us backtrack a little bit. We haven't really discussed the Philippines and General MacArthur's area of responsibility, so I think it's time to make that correction to the narrative. Now, first, we will look at the Philippines and General Douglas MacArthur. You might be surprised to learn he wasn't all that popular with his men in early 1942, and we will discuss the reason why. Then we'll move on and discuss the British and Southeast Asia, specifically Singapore and Malaya. But in order to do that, of course, we got to jump in our time machine. And to help us do that, we have the Song of the Week. This week and for the next few episodes, we're going to have um, some Japanese war songs. And this one is titled Batotai. We'll see you in a few. <laughs> Oh, 
December 10, 1941, saw the first Japanese troops come ashore on Luzon in the Philippines. Now, this wasn't all that unexpected. Even had the United States decided on a, or not decided, on a Europe-first strategy, and at this point, that had not been actually decided, there wasn't much they could do to help that far-off colony. For years, actually about four decades, the American war planners had contemplated the idea that a defense of the Philippines would be based around the idea that defenders would pull back behind fortified lines bisecting the neck of the Bataan Peninsula. It commanded the sea approaches to Manila Bay, and that was where they would dig in and either fight or wait for the U.S. Navy, who'd rescue them. However, General MacArthur had other ideas. He could not stomach a plan which yielded the Philippines to a foreign invader. Instead, he felt they should meet the Japanese head-on, annihilating them on the beaches. The problem was that, to implement this strategy, the Americans would need superior air power, highly mobile infantry divisions, note plural, and a Pacific fleet that was not only still intact, but capable and committed to the idea of sailing to the aid of the Philippines. What MacArthur had was none of these. An American airplane was rarely seen in the skies of Luzon after December 9th. The American Filipino forces were ill-equipped and trained. And then there was the Pacific fleet most of which had been knocked out on December 7th. There was only one move which made any sense at all, and that was pulling his forces back to Bataan. MacArthur did not do this. Now, the first Japanese forces landed on December 10th. Then, on December 22nd, a much larger force, which had sailed from Formosa, came ashore. And I should tell you, I've got some maps on the website, so you might want to check that out as you're continuing to listen on, so you can have a mental picture in your head. It consisted of 50,000 troops, their weapons, light tanks, and artillery. The troop ships and freighters numbered over 80 ships, and they were in two lines, which stretched all the way to the horizon and back. Sadly for the U.S. Navy, its submarines, which survived the early airstrikes, had been expected to dole out heavy damage on the enemy. But they were in no position to do so, especially since the Japanese fleet wasn't spotted until it was too late. Now that isn't to say the U.S. didn't inflict some damage, but that was minimal. The Army had a few B-17s and the Navy used a few PBYs which were able to do something, but it was nowhere near enough to make any difference. Indeed, the Japanese were able to pull off the largest and most successful amphibious landing in history up to that point. Now, the way to Manila was open and Japanese forces rapidly advanced. The poorly trained and equipped Filipino army was brushed aside, and the artillery units, manned by American soldiers, were left exposed to savage frontal assaults by Japanese infantry. MacArthur was inundated with requests from his commanders in the field to withdraw. As if things weren't bad enough, on the 24th of December, a second major force came ashore at Lamon Bay, 60 miles to the south and east of Manila. Now the capital was being threatened by two forces. MacArthur, seeing the writing on the wall, cabled Washington. He asked if he could be reinforced and noted he needed air power. He even asked if aircraft carriers were available and could they get in range. Of course, the answer to all of these questions was negative. Thus, MacArthur was forced to fall back 
on the decades-old war plan known as War Plan Orange. That plan called for the abandonment of Manila and a fighting retreat onto the Bataan Peninsula. From there, the army could dig in and fight against a long siege. General Douglas MacArthur on Christmas Eve decided or declared Manila an open city. He told his air chief, General Louis uh, Brereton, to send the remaining B-17s out of harm's way and ordered his staff to put WPO3 into effect. MacArthur himself folded up shop and sailed to Corregidor uh, off Bataan. Now, interestingly, the Japanese were caught by surprise by this move and essentially did nothing. Had they simply bombed a few of the bridges on the route to Bataan, they could have destroyed most of, if not all, of the American forces heading there. And while many Filipinos deserted the army, those that remained fought with both courage and determination, adding to the overall quality of the troops who made it safely onto Bataan. On January 2nd, 1942, Japanese soldiers entered Manila. As you can imagine, storefronts were boarded up. Gangs had been engaged in looting, and crowds of civilians stood watching the troops enter in stunned silence. Today's show is sponsored by Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're a bit overwhelmed by all the teeth whitening products on the market. Smile Brilliant has given me some very interesting facts to pass on to you. Fact number one, teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary from person to person, but for most of us, it's an off-white or slightly yellowish undertone. Fact number two, teeth whitening doesn't damage teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate them. Now, when they're dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which, as we know, lead to tooth decay. So, avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also, avoid staining substances, as the teeth at this time are more susceptible to being restained. Fact number three, tooth sensitivity is the result of tooth dehydration. And when the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application, known as remineralization, or a desensitizing gel. Fact number four, caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they don't have pores for the stains to latch onto. So, prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact number five, the key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as a whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is the device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without an eruption. Whitening strips neglect the crevices and the molars, and they slide on your teeth. Saliva floods the generic trays because they're bulky and they don't create a seal. Oh, and if you uh, likely did not know this, but uh, the LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit. You need a high-output UV light only found at the dentist, so don't fall for the gimmick. If you insist on a light that does not work, get one at Amazon for less than $5. Now, the number one whitening device recommended by dentists is the custom-fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for $300 to $600, or you can head over to www.smilebrilliant.com and use their lab-direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price that you would pay at the dentist. And if you grind your teeth at night, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom-fitted night guards, once again, for a fraction of the price that dentists charge. Head over to smilebrilliant.com and use coupon code AMERICAN for an incredible discount, available only to listeners of the show. At the home of the American High Commissioner, 
the Japanese troops lowered the American flag in a military ceremony, and a Japanese sailor crowned his feet into it. Then the rising sun flag was raised as the Japanese band played the Japanese national anthem. On January 15th, even though he had been told there would be no help coming, MacArthur told his troops the following, quote, Help is on the way from the United States. Thousands of troops and hundreds of airplanes are being dispatched. No further retreat is possible. We have more troops in baton than the Japanese have thrown against us. Our supplies are ample. A determined defense will defeat the enemy's attack. I call upon every soldier in baton to fight in his assigned position, resisting every attack. This is the only road to salvation. If we fight, we will win. If we retreat, we will be destroyed. Then the fighting began. Now, if you look at the map on the website, and again, I've got um, more than one there, um, but if you're on Patreon, you'll see the map that I've included in the script. You'll notice several defensive lines. First one, then another fell. The fighting was intense and bloody. Slowly but surely, the Japanese were moving forward and the Americans and their Filipino allies were running out of land. That wasn't their only problem. Almost immediately, all troops were put on half rations. This was due to the fact that, thanks to a quick retreat out of Manila, the army was not able to transfer all available ammunition, food, or medical supplies. However, while they might be hungry, they were, for the moment, secure. Then in late January and into early February, repeated frontal assaults by the Japanese led to heavy losses for both well, for the Japanese and amphibious landings along the west coast of the peninsula also saw heavy casualties for the enemy. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, part of the problem was that the Japanese underestimated the size of the combined American-Filipino forces. They believed it to number about 25,000, but in fact, it was three times that size. Further, unlike earlier in December, these troops did not break and run. Instead, they hunkered down behind their lines and met the Japanese infantry with heavy artillery barrages. By the middle of February, the Japanese had lost 7,000 men, and their general messaged Tokyo, requesting more men. This was denied. His superiors demanded he snuff out the resistance and declare the entire island nation pacified. Hirohito himself demanded quick action. The reputation of the Imperial Army was at stake. General Homa, the Japanese officer in charge of the campaign, was under immense pressure. His chief of staff, Lieutenant General Masami Maeda, argued that instead of attacking they should simply lay siege to the peninsula and wait for the Americans and Filipinos to eat through their supplies. At this point, they would simply surrender. However, this was not an option, although it was undoubtedly the right thing to do. General Hideki Tojo demanded the Japanese commander either attack or be relieved of command. So the situation in the Philippines was desperate. To make matters worse, when the president of the Philippines, Manuel Quezon, 
heard that the Allies, uh, either Americans, were committed to a Europe-first strategy, he was angered beyond belief. He supposedly said, quote, How typical of America to writhe in anguish at the fate of a distant cousin while a daughter is being raped in the back room, end quote. Reports that Filipino troops, which were denied by MacArthur, were receiving less rations than Americans incensed him even more. He proposed giving himself up to the Japanese and declaring the Philippines neutral and independent. The idea here was that he would bargain for the welfare of his people, and he knew what was coming. MacArthur, who was close to the president, forwarded it to Washington with his qualified endorsement. He noted it might be the best possible solution to what was turning into a disaster. However, when President Franklin Roosevelt heard the idea, he shut it down. In his mind, there could be no separate peace with the Japanese of any sort, and he was adamant that Bataan must be defended to the last man. Further, this meant, and he was aware of it, that the Philippines must suffer under occupation until they could be liberated by force. And that meant, of course, even more suffering. General George C. Marshall, prior to this point, had wondered privately if the president were up to the task of conducting a world war. He now realized that FDR was indeed capable of being utterly ruthless. Quote, I immediately discarded everything I had held in my mind to his discredit. I decided he was a great man, end quote. I'm not so sure I agree with the general, but I'll let you decide for yourself. In the end, the writing was on the wall for the Philippines. It was all but over. The Americans in Bataan were expected to hold out for as long as they could, but they were going to be annihilated. That was obvious. Their sacrifice, I wonder if anyone asked them what they th all thought of this, would hopefully buy some time for the theaters in the South and Eastern Pacific to stabilize. Finally, on March 11th, by order of the president himself, MacArthur and his senior staff, along with his wife and four-year-old son, left Corregidor and, under the cover of darkness, headed to Mindano, where they took a B-17 to Australia. Now, MacArthur, believe it or not, was not very popular amongst his men on Bataan. They called him Dugout Doug, a reference to the fact that he was holed up in a bunker on Corregidor and never showed himself amongst the men on Bataan. There were rumors that, when he fled, he took a rather large amount of luggage that contained money, food, and other luxury items, instead of trying to get as many men out as he could. Now, these accusations were unfair, and to the best of my knowledge, untrue. However, he did, on January 3rd, um, accept a payment from the Filipino government in the sum of $300,000, and his staff officers accepted smaller payments. Apparently, FDR knew of this and had no objection. After MacArthur left, General Jonathan Wainwright, who remained in command on the island of Corregidor, was promoted to lieutenant general and given command of Allied forces in the Philippines. But he was aware that this command would not hold out long. Supplies dwindled, and rations were cut from one-half down to one-third. Cavalry horses and mules were slaughtered and devoured. Malnutrition was followed up by disease, malaria, and dysentery spread. Sick men died in their hospital beds due to a lack of medicine. A journalist who was amongst the men, Frank Hewlett, wrote a verse that was taken up by the men stuck in this hell on earth. Here it is. We're the battling bastards of Bataan. No mama, no papa, no Uncle Sam. No aunts, no uncles, no cousins, no nieces, no pills, no planes, or artillery pieces. And nobody gives a damn. And while the Americans were having issues in the Philippines, the British were having difficulties in Malaya. 
They had been far too confident, verging on the brink of arrogance when it came to the war. From the start of the war in early December, through to the surrender of Singapore two months later, they suffered what might be termed a full-on psychological collapse. This was due to successive catastrophic losses on land, on the sea, and in the air to the Japanese war machine. Perhaps a victory or two might have helped, but victories were not on the horizon, at least not for the British, and certainly not at this point in the war. Now, just how arrogant were the British? Quote, well, I suppose you'll shove the little men off, end quote, is what the colonial governor said to General Arthur E. Percival when he learned the Japanese had attacked in northern Malaya on the first day of the war. To make matters worse for the British, blackout conditions were not imposed in Singapore. Thus, the city lights made great targets for the Japanese air forces when they attacked the city later that night. In short order, the British Air Force had to concede control of the skies to Japan. This, in turn, led to the Japanese amphibious landings on the beaches free of British air harassment. Now, part of the problem was that the British had recalled their best aircraft and pilots to Europe. The Royal Air Force in Southeast Asia was feeble, and that's putting it kindly. The essence of the problem was the presence of a deep institutional contempt for the Japanese air forces, a weakness that was shared with their American cousins. Air bases, in some cases, were abandoned without so much as a shot even being fired. Most of the Royal Air Force, such as it existed in that region, was sent to Singapore, ostensibly to defend the city. However, the nightly raids by the Japanese went on and on, with little to no answers from the Royal Air Force. As I've often said, truth is the first casualty in war, and it was no different here. A local headline declared, Singapore beats off 125 raiders. The actual truth, later reported by CBS war correspondent Cecil Brown, is that the Japanese dropped their bombs and went home. If this wasn't bad enough, the lack of air presence in Malaya couldn't be hidden from Commonwealth troops. They were continuously bombarded and strafed by Japanese planes. They counted on total air superiority, but in the end, the enemy air force was allowed to do whatever it wanted to the detriment of British ground forces. Now, an interesting observation came to us from General Brooke Popham, who'd seen the Japanese troops in action on the Hong Kong-China border in 1940. He described them as, quote, this is his stuff, not mine, quote, various subhuman specimens dressed in dirty gray uniforms, which I was informed were Japanese soldiers. If these represent the average Japanese army, the problems of their food and accommodation would be simple, but I cannot believe they would form an intelligent fighting force, end quote. Okay, so a year later in the jungles of Malaya, the Philippines, Burma, and elsewhere, a different myth took hold. Now the Japanese infantry were a, quote, super warrior, end quote, to be respected and feared. He, the Japanese soldier, was a creature uniquely adapted to jungle warfare. Uh, here's General Brooke Popham once again with some of his great wisdom. He was asked why the Japanese were so successful and the British were doing so poorly. Quote, the Japanese have a capacity to live on the country. They require very, very little, and what they do find to eat is what they are used to. The British can't do that, end quote. <laughs> wow. These myths, be they the ones of early 1941 or the later ones of 1942, were based on old racial canards and were hard to overcome. They struck fear into the men who were supposed to face these supposed super warriors on the ground, and amazingly, there was a danger that these fears could turn self-fulfilling.
Okay, so I don't want this to turn into a super long episode. Thus, we will end this one here. Now, in the next episode, we will continue to look at the fall of Singapore and the events going on in Southeast Asia, aka the Southwest Pacific Theater. I'm Sean, and this has been episode 19 of season 4, The War in the Pacific. And I'll see you real soon. Shut it off for our rent. Oh, please, oh, 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 oh,